Welcome to The Last Month at the Federal Circuit, a look at recent Federal Circuit decisions impacting the intellectual property community. Today we are joined by Finnegan attorneys Kara Regan and Sydney Kessel. So thanks for being with us. The first case we want to discuss is Sinper Technologies Limited versus Rockefeller University. That was issued in July, and it takes on interferences under the Patent Act. Sydney, first of all, what's an interference, and how does the AIA impact interferences? So the, the pre-AIA system, so the, the system that was in place before the AIA was enacted, it was a, a first inventor to invent system. So the U.S. was the last country in the world to, to actually use this system, and what that means was the, the first person to invent had priority to an invention and would be entitled to a patent, uh, even if someone else uh, were to come and file a patent application first. In this pre-AIA regime, to determine who the first person was to invent an invention, the patent office would conduct what were called interference proceedings. These were costly, lengthy, fact-intensive proceedings, uh, the goal being to make a factual determination on who actually invented uh, the invention first. This could take many, many years and could be declared at any time, even after a patent had issued. And with the AIA, Congress changed the landscape. So it moved from this first inventor to invent system to a first inventor to file system, aligning with the, the rest of the countries in the world. And with this change, uh, the focus was less on who may have been the first uh, to invent something, and instead, who actually got to the patent office first to file an application. And as part of that new landscape, Congress explained that these interference proceedings would no longer be available or, or even necessary. For patents that were governed by the AIA, that were part of this new AIA system, that were issued under the, the first inventor to file regime, these would not be subject to interference proceedings. And so uh, we, we now live in a world where there are three categories of, of patents. So pure pre-AIA patents, so those that have only ever had claims that were filed before the, the AIA date. So for those patents, the old interference rules would apply. There are pure AIA patents. So those that have claims that were filed on or after uh, the AIA date. Uh, which is March 16th, 2013. And for those pure AIA uh, patents, the new interference rules would apply. And then a, a third category, which is mixed. So these types of patents have claims that are both pre and post the AIA. And for these mixed patents, the old interference rules would apply. And Kara, can you explain the background and holding of this case? Sure. And so the case takes on an interesting kind of gap in the law. We have these categories of patents where the pure pre-IA patents have to be dealt with by interference. That's part of their statutory requirement. And you have post-AIA patents that are not supposed to be subject to interferences. And the case looked at an intersection of Sniper's patents, which were pure AIA patents. They've never had any claims that were pre-2013. And they had issued. They were issued enforceable patents. And Rockefeller's pending application which had pre-AA claims. There was a little bit of a debate as to whether those patent applications were pure or mixed pre-AA, but everybody agreed they had pre-AIA claims and they were in some way subject to the old regime. And the PTAB declared an interference that even though Sniper's patents were pure AIA patents that were post-interference, they should not have been subject to interference, 
because they had to decide what to do with Rockefeller's application, the PTAB decided to institute an interference and they canceled Sniper's issued patents. And so on appeal, Sniper went to the federal circuit and said the PTAB never should have declared an interference in the first place. It didn't have authority to do this. We have pure AIA patents. And the court agreed. The court reversed the PTAB's decision and said that as a, a per se rule, pure AIA patents cannot be subject to interferences. Okay. And what was the court's reasoning? Sure. So it was really a, a traditional statutory interpretation analysis. So the court began with the language of the statute and considered the statute's purpose in history. And the, the key statute here was AIA section 3N, which provides that the AIA shall apply to patents that are filed on or after March 16th, 2013. And the court noted shall is mandatory. The AIA expressly repealed interferences and replaced them with a derivation proceeding. That was actually one of the goals of the AIA. And so for pure AIA patents, there could be no interferences. Um, the court noted too that the Congress had actually considered if there were any groups of AIA patents that ought to be subject to interferences and they had carved out a limited exception. So the mixed patents that we discussed earlier, by definition, those have post and pre AIA claims and the whole patent is subject to this interference proceeding. And so there are some post AIA claims that are still subject to these but it is a very limited, specific exception in the statute. And so the, the court considered the counter argument, which is that you know, the old section 135A, which was the interference statute, said whenever an application is made for a patent, which in the opinion of the director would interfere with any pending application or with any unexpired patent, an interference may be declared. And the PTAB's decision had said, well, any unexpired patent doesn't say pre or post AIA, it just says any unexpired patent. And we have a pre AIA application. And so we must be able to declare an interference for this unexpired patent. And the court rejected that interpretation. They said, you know, looking at the two statutes together, the specific provisions in the AIA saying that there would be no interferences for post AIA patents had to govern. The AIA specifically replaced interference proceedings it removed priority as a means of challenging AI patents and reading them together. Any unexpired patents simply could not include pure AI patents. Um, the court found that finding otherwise would defeat the purpose of the AIA, and it would create a kind of odd situation where for 20 years after the AIA was implemented, interferences would have continued, which the court decided was contrary to the statutory scheme. Okay, now does that mean that there can be two patents on the same subject matter? So this was actually a, um, a point that Rockefeller and the Patent Office, which had intervened in the case, raised as, as uh, one reason to suggest why the pure AIA patent should be subject to uh, an interference proceeding. And the federal circuit said, no, this isn't really a concern. There are other means of challenge available, such as inter partes review, post-grant reviews, and ex parte re-exams. And the court was not persuaded that the mere possibility of a particularly rare case where a pre-AIA application would not be prior art to an AIA patent would really change the calculus that, you know, that the director had raised. I think it was a long list of seven circumstances that had to be met before a situation would manifest where a, a potential conflict would arise. But the court said that was just a hypothetical possibility. It was very, very remote. And that at the end of the day, these other means were, were really available and, and there would not be an issue of two patents issuing on the same subject matter. 
So the second case we want to talk about is INRI Float and Grill, also issued in July, which addresses patent requirements for reissue applications. Can you explain what reissues are? Sure. So when a patent application is still pending, you're able to file a second application and claim and raise additional claims. And so those can expand the scope of what you covered beyond your original application. And you, you call it a continuation, a divisional, even a continuation in part. While there's still a, a pending application, you have a lot of latitude with what to do. But after a patent issues, if you'd like to change the scope of the patent's actual issued claims, the rules are a lot more defined. Your available options change. And while you can try to change and broaden the scope of the issued claims through what's called a reissue process, there are a number of requirements to do so. Those are governed by 35 USC 251. And as most relevant to this court's decision, the reissue provision requires that any reissue claims have to be directed to the invention disclosed in the original patent. So that's known as the original patent requirement. And it requires the court or the examiner, whichever the patent is before, to consider whether the reissue claims are being broadened to cover alternatives for a feature that was disclosed in the original patent as critical or essential, or if they're being revised to remove limitations that the original patent considered as critical or essential. And if a patent applicant is broadening their claims in that way, the reissue claims often don't meet the original patent requirement and are not permissible. Okay, Sydney, how about some background and, and the holding of this case? What, what happened? So uh, in this case, a patentee had owned a patent um, that was directed to uh, a floating device that supports a grill. So it'll let you, you know, sit in a pool, float in a pool, and grill at the same time. And the specification described this floating device as having a number of features, including what's most relevant here, uh, a plurality of magnets that would removably secure the grill to supports on the floating device. There were no other structures disclosed or otherwise described in the specification that would serve this securing function, operate as the plurality of magnets described in the spec. And um, after the patent issued, the patentee wanted to, to broaden its claims through the reissue process. In particular, it wanted to remove uh, limitations that were claiming the plurality of magnets that we were just talking about. And the examiner rejected these claims for failing to satisfy the reissue standard that Kara just walked through, and in particular, the original patent requirement. The Federal Circuit affirmed that decision on appeal, and it reasoned that the original specification only described one embodiment that characterized this float apparatus, this floating device, as having a grill support, including a plurality of magnets for safely and removably securing the grill to the float. The plurality of magnets were the only disclosed component uh, that would secure the grill to the support. And nowhere else, again, the specification, the original specification described the plurality of magnets as optional, representative, or exemplary. Uh, the, the court reasoned that these magnets, the plurality of magnets, were an essential part of the original invention. And the patentee's attempt to uh, remove that limitation from the claims during reissue violated this original patent requirement. Kara, what should patentees take away from this case? I think it's really twofold. It's when you're drafting the patent application initially, consider how you're describing features very carefully. You know, if you don't have to describe something as necessary or critical or essential, be mindful of whether you really want to do that. And even if you're not using language like that expressly, consider expressly noting the availability of alternatives or describing features as representative or exemplary rather than limiting your invention in some way. Another takeaway is that 
it might be worthwhile to keep a continuation open where possible. Reissue, of course, has limited options, as we've discussed. The party here might have been able to obtain a new patent with broader coverage, had a continuation been pending, or at least potentially could have filed a continuation in part and avoided the issue that way. All right. Well, we'll leave it there. Kara, Sydney, thank you so much. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Our guests have been Kara Regan and Sydney Kessel of Finnegan, one of the largest IP law firms in the world. For more commentary on intellectual property news and issues, to listen to other podcasts, and to receive additional information on the firm, please visit www.finnegan.com. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Finnegan. <laughs>